Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is the St. Patrick's Day Special. Have you ever wondered why you get drunk every St. Patrick's Day? It's because you're an alcoholic. But have you ever wondered who St. Patrick was? Well, this episode is a collection of member material answering some of those questions. And if you like it, please share it with your friends. I think more people should know about the saint who's behind this most drunken of holidays. So grab a glass of Jameson and get ready to learn about St. Patrick. So we begin our story at Bonaventa Bernii, a small town somewhere in the west of Britain, probably along the coast. This was probably a typical small Roman-style settlement laid out on a grid with small Roman houses and a villa, or villas, for prominent families in the area. Though it's doubtful that these villas would have been too impressive, especially when compared with those of Rome, or even of the major British cities. But that being said, for a small town in Britannia, the people living in the villas were probably doing pretty well. Now given the time period, we can assume that it probably had some level of fortification, possibly a small turf wall, or maybe even something larger with guard towers. After all, raids were rather common at this point. But this is guesswork, because we really haven't been able to develop an archaeological dig to determine the exact situation of the town that I'm talking about, because, well, we're not sure where it is. There is a Roman town named Bonaventa in Britannia, but it was over 70 miles from the coast. And 70 miles is a long way. And as we get farther into this story, you'll see why that location raises some eyebrows. Now, some have argued that the real town we're talking about was in the region of Strathclyde. Others have argued that it might have been any number of locations in Wales. Unfortunately, the location of this small town might never be known to us. It's probably been lost to time. But we can be reasonably sure that it was in a location that had been inhabited since the Iron Age since many of the sites of Roman towns do trace their roots back to at least the Celtic period. And we can also be fairly sure that it was populated by people who spoke a form of Proto-Welsh, as well as Latin, depending on your class. Additionally, the town was large enough to need a decurion, a powerful local magistrate whose duties included supervising the collection of taxes. It came with other benefits as well. For example, he was exempt from some of the more arduous judicial punishments, and, of course, he was entitled to wear a purple stripe on his toga, which I'm sure looked rather flashy. And it would also, you know, clearly identify his station to all who encountered him. And this fancy-pants fellow was named Calpurnius, which is actually a fairly common name for that period. Now, Calpurnius was a rather busy man, because in addition to his imperial duties, he was also a deacon within the Christian church. Although that was probably not surprising, considering that his father, Potitus, was a priest and could probably trace his days back to the rule of Constantine. You might be surprised to hear of priests having children, but at this point in history, marriage was not forbidden to the clergy. So this family was quite powerful. It most likely controlled a great deal of land, as well as significant agricultural power in the region. And given their position in the church, and the dominance that the Christian church had acquired in the years following Constantine, they also certainly possessed a great deal of social clout in religious circles. And don't forget that, depending on who was in charge, members of the church also received tax benefits. 
Not that they needed it, considering that they had a Dakurian in the family, but, you know, it's still a bonus. And as we spoke about in the main podcast, the tax burden at this time was quite heavy. So to get out from under it would be a big motivator. Not to mention that it would give the family an advantage in increasing their share of the available wealth of the area. So regardless of whether or not they were believers, it would have been a solid business decision to convert and to be part of the church. And I think we can all agree that this family was doing pretty well as a result. Now into this rather prominent British family was born a son. According to legend, this occurred in 387, though we already know how dodgy dates from this period can be. But the point is that Calpurnius had a son. And as this dynasty was part of the local upper class, and possibly ambitious and prideful, the child was named Patricius, a reference to the title of patrician, which once was only reserved for the most elite of aristocratic Roman families, but now was typically a title that was also applied to local officials of high standing. Patricius was a lucky kid. He probably grew up in a fairly large villa that could have been reminiscent of a country estate, with green fields and flocks of sheep. It was probably an idyllic Roman aristocratic childhood in certain respects. I mean, he'd be able to watch the family slaves milking the cows, herding the little lambs around, and harvesting their fields. The townspeople would have also been very deferential to him and his family. And he might not have even noticed this as being unusual. There's a good chance that he had no idea he was privileged. Or if he did, he probably just accepted it and figured that was just the way things were. After all... He was a kid, and also, that was just kind of the way things were. Now, as for his education, he probably would have learned British as his first language. But he probably was also exposed to Latin through his influential father and his grandfather. And in general, he would just learn things through general exposure to life, until he was around the age of seven. At that point, his formal education would have begun, and it would have started at dawn, and it would have involved strict discipline. His teachers were probably underpaid ex-slaves, and the reason for that is that primary education wasn't highly valued at this point in history. And at this stage of his education, he would have learned reading and writing, followed by mathematics. This would continue for four or five years, and by the time Patricius was about 12 years old, he would start learning language and poetry. He would spend a great deal of time reciting poems in Latin, such as Virgil's Aeneid. His instructors would be better paid, but one wouldn't call them well-paid, and that was probably because this was a mere stepping stone, a preparation to get him to the more important stage of his education, oration. And by the time Patricius was about 15 years old, he would begin learning from a well-paid and respected instructor on the methods of oration. As someone in the upper class of British society, Patricius would have been expected to follow in his family's footsteps and go into public service as a decurion, as it was a hereditary role. He would inherit that automatically from his father. And that would require him to be a gifted public speaker, as being involved in tax collection was rather dangerous in the late Romano-British period. The training in public speaking would typically continue for four or five years, but that instruction would be interrupted, as we will get to later in our story. And the loss of those years of education was something that Patricius would lament for most of his life. He would feel perpetually uneducated compared to his peers. And actually, he wrote, quote, I don't have much education compared to other people. I was not able to study both literature and theology year after year as they did. 
They never had to learn to speak any new language, but could steadily improve their own Latin until it was practically perfect. But I write Latin as if it were a foreign language. Any reader can easily see what kind of education I had. End quote. You can see how this loss tormented him later in his life. But that's getting ahead of our story. So Patricius was from a prominent Christian family. So what about his religious training? Well, he was almost certainly baptized as an infant, given his family's position as well as the cultural norms of the time. He probably was taught numerous biblical stories starting at a young age. He probably knew more about theology than your average Roman citizen, given the status of his family. But as he wrote later in life, despite all of that, he was faithless. He had no interest in religion. He was basically an atheist. Now, this might have been tied up in an event that would haunt him later in his life. He engaged in a sin that was so terrible that it followed him and nearly caused his downfall later in his life when it became public. He said that this sin was committed in a single hour of his youth. So this was a short, but apparently catastrophically damning event. However, he was apparently following the lessons learned by J.J. Abrams and Lost because he never reveals the secret and instead just leaves us guessing. So what could be so awful that decades later it still nearly ruined him? Well, typically, early Christians saw three primary sins as the worst of the bunch. The first up is idolatry, but I suspect that this couldn't have been it. I mean, really, would an hour of idolatry in his youth be enough to nearly destroy him as an old man? So I'm going to dismiss this one out of hand. I'm just not buying it. Sexual immorality is the second. And this is a little bit more likely. I mean, he was a teenager. But even at this period in history, a role in the hay doesn't seem particularly that awful. I'm sure that there were plenty of other bishops who had similar instances in their youth. So unless it was with another boy or a family member, it probably wasn't serious enough to warrant the efforts to put him on trial. Oh yeah, there were attempts to put him on trial and eliminate his rank. So we're talking about something pretty bad. Which brings us to option number three. Murder. Murder is pretty bad. I know I'm shocking you with that statement, but it was bad then. It's bad now. Murder is just terrible. And murder is something that you can do in an hour. And it certainly was grievous enough of a sin to result in calls for trials decades later. And what we know of Patricius was that he was a man of tremendous religious passion later in life. So perhaps when he was younger, that passion wasn't directed and it boiled over in a more tragic way. Now there's one other possibility. So Dr. Roy Fleckner over at Cambridge has been arguing that Patricius actually decided to leg it from his hometown because he didn't want to have the poison pill of becoming a decurion forced upon him. And spoiler alert here, Dr. Fleckner says he wasn't kidnapped at all, but instead Patricius fled to Ireland to avoid getting the job. He has some interesting arguments to support this, not the least of which is that we generally only know about the life of Patricius by his own hand. And the whole story of how he came to Ireland and then left it seems rather far-fetched. But for the purpose of this podcast... I'm going to stick more closely to the widely accepted theories and leave the experimental research to Dr. Fleckner. Though I will say this, if Dr. Fleckner is right, maybe Patricius's flight from his duties and the lies that followed were the sins that he was lamenting but refused to name. So we have this boy, 
Patricius, who has been living the high life. He's fairly well educated for his age, but he's only just beginning his instruction in oration. His entire educational life has been leading to this point. Once he's finished with these lessons, and once his father is too old to carry out his own duties, he will inherit his title and become a decurion. Patricius' life is completely laid out before him. Something happened, something shameful, and it only took an hour. And we don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was bad enough that when it was discovered later on in his life, he nearly lost everything. But in general, Patricius had an incredibly privileged and easy life. But that was set to change. Now, in all likelihood, he was asleep in his room when the Irish wood and leather boats came ashore. His parents were away to town, so he'd been left in charge of the household, and the 15-year-old was utterly unprepared for what was to come. Only a short distance from his home, the raiders probably quietly lowered their masts, gently lowered themselves into the water, and quickly made their way to dry land, leaving only a few behind to guard the boats. The raiders themselves were probably quite experienced. After all, this was big business in Ireland, and many of the tasks they had to carry out were probably down to muscle memory. But at the same time, they were probably in a state of hyper-alertness. Theirs was a dangerous profession. And if things didn't go exactly according to plan, they would find themselves in an incredibly precarious position, and likely to come to a violent and extremely painful end. So stealth and awareness were key for these Irishmen as they moved swiftly across open ground. Their target was the villa of a local nobleman. In there, they would find riches as well as slaves. The raiders probably slipped into the villa unnoticed and spread out. Some went into the storerooms, others into the servants' quarters, and still others went to the primary bedrooms of the residents. Any grown men they found were likely killed, as they couldn't be easily subdued and ran the risk of raising an alarm. The children and the generally disarmed Romanized women, on the other hand, were prime targets for capture and slavery. Simple economics were at play here. There was only so much room in the boat, so they would have to take those that they felt they could get the highest price. Any who didn't make the cut, well, it didn't go too well for them. And if anyone who was taken made the mistake of crying out and couldn't be silenced, they would be killed as well. There was no room for compassion in the slave trade. And it was to this nightmare that Patricius awoke. In a certain respect, Patricius was lucky. While he was older, he must have been seen as still being young enough to be dominated, as well as being useful for manual labor. Had he been older, or given the raiders an impression that he would be either dangerous or a flight risk, our story would end here. But instead, the raiders decided he was worth the risk and moved in to take him. He was probably in the process of being gagged and bound before he was even fully awake. The raider might have hissed silence in Latin, well, in broken Latin, since some of the Irish knew Latin at this point. Or maybe the raider just stayed quiet and let the presence of his knife do the talking. Regardless, Patricius was helpless, and in mere moments he found himself being led down to the boats, along with his own servants, bound in chains with little hope for rescue or relief. Earlier that day, he was Patricius, a nobleman and heir to a prestigious title and villa. Earlier, he had commanded a houseful of slaves, spent his days training for a future career, and likely wanted for nothing. But now, for the first time in his life, 
He was in the same position as those he had dominated only hours before. He was a slave, and he was being hauled to unknown lands by people he didn't know and didn't understand. And he wasn't alone. The Irish have been taking slaves for years. Patricius himself tells us that there were, quote, many thousands of others, end quote, who had walked in his shoes. And the brutal truth of this is that many of those slaves were probably slaves in Britannia before they'd been taken. They were just exchanging one master for another, in a sense. Though this particular master, the Irish master, was probably for life. In the Roman world, you could get out of slavery, either by winning your freedom or by buying your way out. I'm not saying it was common, but at least it was possible. That generally wasn't the case in Ireland. So the voyage to Ireland, even for those who were already bound in servitude, was rather grim. We don't know what happened on that voyage, nor do we know what happened to Patricius at the docks of the slave trader. But he does tell us that he belonged to the same master for six years, so we can assume that he was sold. Later traditions tell us that it was a druid named Miliuk. But those traditions are incredibly unreliable and filled with all sorts of fantastical fables. So the truth of it is, we just don't know who this master was because Patricius didn't name him. But in all likelihood, he was a farmer. After all, this was an agricultural society, and he probably needed help around the farm. Specifically, we know he needed help tending his sheep. So where was this farm? Where was it located? Where did Patricius spend those six years in slavery? Well, he doesn't give us a precise location, so it's a bit hard to tell. He does tell us that when he finally escaped, he had to travel about 200 Roman miles to find a ship to carry him home. That's a hell of a long distance, and suggests that he might have been on the west coast of Ireland. If that's the case, then the popular choice of County Antrim is completely ruled out. Well, that is, unless Patricius took an incredibly scenic route to get to the ships. Otherwise, there's just no way it would take around 200 Roman miles to get from County Antrim to a ship. Some have argued that County Mayo might have been where he spent his years in slavery. But ultimately, there really isn't any hard evidence that conclusively points to any particular location. So in the end, we just don't know where it was. But we do know that he couldn't speak the language, at least not to begin with. But he was observant. So throughout his years in captivity, he sat quietly and listened and learned. He was probably intensely lonely. And so becoming accustomed to these strange people, as well as their religion, was probably all that kept him from going completely batty. All he had was observation and his duties tending the flocks of sheep. That job, by the way completely sucked. Irish farm life had a hierarchy to it, and tending cattle was pretty close to the top. Cattle were a big deal. This was a cattle-based economy. Even one of the famous stories of Cuculain involves a cattle raid. Cattle were big business. Horses and pigs actually were also a pretty big deal. Horses were useful, and pigs, well, who doesn't love bacon? But sheep? Who cares about sheep? That was for the lowest of the low. It was essentially the Irish farm equivalent of latrine duty. Sure, you needed the sheep for wool, but tending to the flocks was hardly the job for a free Irish adult. After all, it was a huge pain in the ass. Ireland might have lacked snakes. Spoiler alert here, we have records from the 4th century remarking upon Ireland's lack of snakes, which was long before Patricius was born. So anyway, it might have lacked snakes, but it still had predators such as wolves. 
and wolves love lamb. I guess that wouldn't be so bad, but the damn sheep just couldn't be left in a pen like the pigs. Oh no, they had to go out and graze. Rain or shine, they needed to go out, eat, and then come back to the pen in the evening. Every day, no matter what. It would have been an awful job. And so generally it fell to slaves, and also children. Hey kids, we don't want our sheep to get eaten by wolves. On the other hand, it's raining, and all that bleeding gives me a headache, so, uh, how about you go out there and deal with it? I'm sure you'll be fine. Look out for the wolves. And while generally it was a dawn-to-dusk job, in the spring it extended into something of a 24-7 operation. Someone had to keep watch and help with the birth of the lambs. So every spring you'd have sleep-deprived shepherds trying to scare off wolves, hopefully avoiding headbutts from the sheep, and probably dealing with migraines from all that bleeding. And then in the summer you'd be working your hands raw, shearing all the sheep so that the wool could be used for the production of cloth. And then in the autumn, you'd have to castrate most of the young males, creepy and gross, and then slaughter the older sheep for meat. And while you were probably sick and tired of all the bleeding, the screams of terrified and dying sheep probably wouldn't be that great of a substitute. And then in the winter, you're out in the cold and the snow and the rain with your stupid bleeding sheep. So all in all, it was an awful job. And it was certainly a far cry from the cushy, noble life that Patricius had grown accustomed to. The friends he'd grown up with were probably going into public life by now, and were probably getting married and starting families of their own. And what was he doing? Hanging out with these noisy, stupid, and sometimes aggressive sheep? This sucks. And amongst all this bleeding, screaming, and headbutting, Patricius started to think of the lessons and stories he was taught in his childhood. He tells us that he didn't believe in his youth, but apparently the cacophony of mutton combined with the sheer boredom and loneliness of living as a slave out in the pasture, well, it caused something of a revival in him. He says he would say a hundred prayers every morning, and a hundred prayers every night. A very odd habit from the perspective of the Irish, who typically focus their worship upon sacrifices and a sort of trade relationship with their gods. But here is one of their slaves being strictly devotional. It was weird. So what caused this sudden interest in the religion of his childhood? Was it something like a jailhouse conversion? That only once you've lost everything do you find God? Perhaps it was the fact that his sole purpose, the only reason he was alive, was to care for the lives of others. In this case, his flock. Perhaps it was that realization that caused him to start to look for meaning in his life. It took the focus off of himself and forced him to look at others. And he says himself that, quote, God used the time to shape and mold me into something better. He made me into what I am now, someone very different from what I once was, someone who can care about others and work to help them. Before I was a slave, I didn't even care about myself, end quote. Well, for whatever reason, Patricius started to believe. And then he tells us that he started to fast. Now this must have completely confused his master, as well as the other slaves and Irishmen in the area. Fasting for the Irish was something you did to shame someone. You fasted as an open showing that you've been wronged and that you're owed redress. Everyone saw it, and through sheer force of embarrassment, conflicts were resolved rather quickly, as no one wanted a starving person sitting outside their hut, publicly saying, You know what you did. It was just awkward. 
and now Patricius was doing it. But he was a slave, and thus he didn't have any standing to shame someone. And he wasn't even saying what the issue was and who he was shaming. He was just fasting. It probably looked like it was an open condemnation on everything and everyone. Or maybe it looked like he'd just completely gone stark raving mad. Either way, awkward. Now he was in that strange twilight of malnourishment, where he tells us that he felt neither illness nor fatigue, a fact that he attributed to the strength of the Holy Spirit, though likely was just the body's reaction to starvation. One night, while he was asleep in his bunk, he heard a voice in the darkness. I like to imagine that it was a bit socially awkward and opened up with something like, Hey, uh, how's it going? But Patrick tells us that the dream voice simply said, You have fasted well. Soon you will be going home. So even without my awkward opening, can you imagine the confusion that must have followed that event? First of all, on a very basic level, he was hearing voices. How bizarre is that? Did he think he was going crazy? Even the most pious of people probably would have not assumed that God was speaking to them. After all, this is an incredibly prideful leap of faith to make. Why would God, or his messengers, speak to a poor British slave? What made him so important as to deserve that level of attention? Why not speak to the emperor and help guide Rome? Why him? Furthermore, why would he be going home? Wasn't this his lot in life? Many Christians owned slaves, even Christian slaves. His father was a Christian, and he owned slaves, in fact. What Patrick was suffering wasn't an affront against God. It was merely a burden that he must endure. And besides, this was all temporary. The religious education that he likely received in his childhood would have comforted him and reminded him that this was all a passing matter, and that what was to come in the afterlife was the most important part of his existence. So he simply needed to bear the weight of his life well, and keep his eye firmly fixed on the afterlife. The fasting would have all been part of that. A spiritual cleansing of a sort. And then along came this voice telling him that he would be leaving. How? When? He came to Ireland as a teenager, and now he was in his 20s. He wasn't so naive as to believe that he would be freed by his master. The Irish didn't treat their slaves the way the Romans did. Even if he was exceptional, it was highly unlikely that he would ever be freed, or even given the chance to buy his freedom. That just wasn't part of Irish culture. So how would he go home? Was the voice talking of escape? How on earth would he accomplish that? Ignoring the fact that this was nearly irreligious, as it focused upon the temporal life rather than the spiritual one, escape was basically impossible. Irish law didn't mess around when it came to slavery. First of all, it was quite possible that he'd be put to death if he was caught. So that right there was a hell of a deterrent. But beyond that, if you came across an escaped slave, you were required to return him or her. The law was clear and lacked exceptions. Even if you were a king, you had to return the slave. So he couldn't count on any help on his flight through the countryside. There was no underground railroad. Actually, everyone would be an enemy and he would stand out like a sore thumb with his British accent. And then to make matters worse, Ireland is an island. I know, I'm blowing your mind right here, aren't I? 
But this is significant, because how on earth are you going to get off the island when you're an escaped slave without any money and the entire island is bound by law to return you to your master? It isn't like you can just board a ship. So what are you going to do? Swim back home? This was complete madness. And maybe he dismissed the voice as exactly that. It's just his despair manifesting in his dream, nothing more. And then the next night, he heard the voice again. He was told that a ship was ready for him. The voice even told him where to find it. 200 miles to the south. 200 miles? Through enemy territory? Through lands unknown to him? Even in friendly territory, this would be a journey that could take weeks. Sources from roughly around this period report that going from one side of Ireland to the other, which was around 150 Roman miles, could take almost three weeks. And that's walking out in the open and using roads. But here we're talking about 200 miles and Patrick would have to hide, maybe traveling only at night, avoiding villages, avoiding known crossings, even avoiding roads. This wasn't a small matter for the young man. It could have taken him well over a month to get to the harbor. And he was a noble-turned-shepherd. He was no expert in foraging or hunting. How would he feed himself? It wasn't like he could steal food. That would put him too close to the very people who would be hunting him. And besides, that would have broken one of God's commandments, and it would hardly be fitting to be following the word of God while at the same time breaking the rules. And it wasn't as if he had a bunch of body fat upon which he could draw from. He was already fasting, and fasting at home was very different from fasting while on the run. This was a nightmare scenario. But he was now convinced that it was God that was speaking to him, so he had to trust in that and go. Now, interestingly, Patrick tells us how far he went, but he doesn't tell us where he went, nor does he tell us where he lived during those years in captivity. This is one of the many things that cast doubt upon Patrick's story, and I think that doubt is completely warranted. This tale of escape seems very unlikely, but we will continue our tale. So on one particular night, Patrick decided to heed the call of the voice and set off into the unknown. We don't know what he brought with him, if anything, but I would hope that he brought at least some provisions since his journey would take him so long. And we don't know where he left from, nor do we know where he was headed, so it's hard to say what course he took, obviously. But given the length of his journey and the fact that he was seeking a harbor, it's a fair guess to assume that he was crossing from the western part of Ireland to the eastern. And that would mean that the initial portion of his journey would have had incredibly harsh weather, Basically, some of the harshest weather that Ireland could throw at him. And then he would have to cross rivers, trek through unfriendly hillsides. The evenings were probably bitterly cold, and on some occasions he probably had to sleep in wet clothing, as lighting a fire would have been far too big of a risk. Overall, it's surprising that he managed to survive. But after a long and brutal journey through hostile territory, Patrick finally made it to the harbor that the voice described. And here's where Patrick truly became terrified. No longer was he moving through the hills and valleys alone, hiding from any signs of life. There, he didn't have to interact with anyone, and thus his thick accent wouldn't give him away. But now, now he had to find a way to get on a ship. How on earth would he accomplish that without being caught? How was he going to find someone willing to allow him to board a ship when he couldn't provide any payment and there was probably a fairly sizable reward for returning him to his master. 
There, watching the harbor from a safe distance in his hut, Patrick must have felt beyond hope. All he had was the voice from his dream to guide him. But maybe that was enough. So he spotted a ship making preparations to set sail, and he steeled himself and approached the captain. The ship itself was crewed by pagans, which means that they might have been Irish merchants or even slavers. But Patrick had to take the chance, and he asked to join the crew. Several months ago, that might have been a tempting offer. After all, a ship could always use strong hands, and Patrick was probably strong. Also, he was likely weather-beaten and hard from his years as a slave. But that was before the fasting, and before the likely months of starvation as he traveled across Ireland. By this point, Patrick must have been mostly skin and bones, his eyes sunken in, his skin sallow, hardly the sort of man that a busy captain would have wanted to take on board. And as you might imagine, the captain refused the offer, telling him that there was no way Patrick would set sail with them. What now? What could he do? He was exposed, and this captain wasn't going to let him come on board. Maybe Patrick could ask another captain, but every time he did that, he risked getting turned in. Every time he opened his mouth, a passerby might recognize his foreign accent and put two and two together. Patrick tells us that he started to pray and began walking back to his hiding spot, where he had spent the night before. And then he heard one of the sailors shout to him, asking him to return. Now, Patrick doesn't tell us what went through his mind at this point, but you really have to wonder, don't you? Was he tempted to run? I think I would have at least considered it. The guilt and fear of getting caught as a runaway would have probably clouded any possibility that maybe something good might come from this sailor. I would have probably assumed that they caught me, and I would have liked it. But Patrick didn't. He turned and faced the captain, and this time, he was offered a position with the crew. Why did they change their minds? Well, we're not told. But he was offered a job as part of the crew. On a single condition. Patrick says that the sailors insisted that he suck on their breasts. Seriously. And this is exactly as strange as it sounds. And even more strangely, Patrick wrote about it in kind of a casual way. Like we, the reader, should know all about this behavior and not be shocked by it. Our best guess is that it was some sort of ritual amongst the sailors. Or maybe they were just messing with him. Regardless, Patrick thought it was a pagan practice and refused to do it for fear of angering God. Luckily for him, the sailors dropped the issue and they set sail. After six years in captivity, Patrick was at last free of Ireland. And he tells us that he sailed for three days with this crew. Much like with most of the story that he tells us, this seems a bit odd. Three days could have taken him as far as Gaul. But Patrick says that he was going home, and he already has told us that he's from Britannia, which meant that going home was a short trip across the Irish Sea. It would take significantly less than three days. Actually, they would have had to have gone at a rather lazy and meandering pace for it to take them three days, and even then it would have meant that the trip went to the extreme tips of Britannia, either Cornwall or up into Scotland. Maybe they made stops or something that Patrick left out of his account. Who knows? But he says that it took three days, and then they landed. And here's where it goes from strange to downright weird. He says that for 28 days after that, they wandered through empty country. 28 days? Empty country? 
What the hell is this? The Blair Witch Project? Here's the thing. Britain's a pretty big island, and travel in some regions can be pretty rough. But four weeks without encountering anyone? Come on. The land was pretty densely populated during the Romano-British period. Even the mountainous regions of Wales, which would have given the group some trouble, were still populated. They should have seen someone during their 28-day trek. Also, what sort of sailors were these? They sailed for three days on a trip that should probably only take a day, and then they land at a random location? Why didn't they land at a port? Did they wreck? If so, that's a pretty big part of the story, and Patrick left it out. Did they intentionally beach for tactical issues? For example, were they smuggling, or maybe they weren't welcome in ports or being chased by pirates or something? But if that's the case, shouldn't the captain have a plan for where he's headed? And also, why did Patrick leave it out? From the sounds of it, they were just wandering through the countryside all alone and were far from anyone or anything. Personally, I don't buy it. I find Patrick to be an incredibly unreliable narrator, and I think that this part of the story is a literary flourish rather than a historical account of what happened in his life. Because thus far, doesn't his life sound a lot like a biblical story? It echoes the story of the Israelites suffering under Pharaoh, doesn't it? Unjustly enslaved, guided by God, lost in the wilderness. I mean, all you really need now is manna from heaven, and you've got the full story. It's all rather fishy, isn't it? Anyway, let's get on with the story. So they're wandering around without any food and no one for miles and no way to get food. And again, this doesn't seem very realistic. No matter where they landed, there would be woods, streams, small wildlife, etc. And while I don't expect everyone from this period to know how to get food, I would think that at least a few of the sailors could fish and set some snares. I mean, it stands to reason, right? But instead, we have Patrick acting as Moses, leading them through the barren deserts of Britain, where nothing is edible and no living people could be found. And all they had to keep them company were their dogs. Dogs? Why did they have dogs? Were they being transported for sale? Irish dogs were sold during this period. But we don't know. It's never explained to us. But what is explained to us is that the sailors were going hungry and growing weak and also were getting more than a little irritated. Apparently not hungry enough to eat the dogs, though. So eventually the captain said to Patrick, Well, Christian, what are you going to do? You say this God of yours is so great and powerful. Why don't you pray to him for us? We're dying of starvation here. I don't think we'll ever see another living soul again. And Patrick responded that they should have faith and that food would appear on their path that very day. Now, he didn't call this manna from heaven, but uh, I think the implication is pretty clear. And sure enough, they ran across a herd of pigs crossing the road ahead of them, and also some honey. And they immediately had a two-day-long bacon, honey, ham, and baby back rib feast. Even the dogs they had with them had a nice meal of pork. Patrick, however, refused to eat the honey because the sailors dedicated it to their gods. Now here's another moment that should give you pause. Not the refusal of the honey-baked ham, although that's pretty crazy in itself, but rather that they're walking along a road and they come across a herd of pigs. Not wild boar, but a herd of pigs. On a road. In a barren land where they won't, quote, ever see another living soul again, end quote. 
Well, except for the pig herder, who almost certainly was written out of the story. And that absence, the absence of the pig herder, raises some questions. For example, did they buy the pigs? If they didn't, what did Patrick think about the theft? And what if the pig herder tried to stop them? Was there murder? If so, what did Patrick think about that? But we don't get any mention regarding anything along those lines. Instead, we just have a road that helpfully has a herd of pigs left unattended, as well as some honey. But it's pagan honey, so Patrick thought it was irreligious to eat it. Never mind the pigs, though. Anyway, after everyone had a nice piggy dinner, something even stranger happens. Patrick claims that he was attacked by Satan in the night, in an account that sounds a lot like sleep paralysis. My understanding is that the cause of it isn't fully understood, but the way sleep paralysis was explained to me is this. Imagine you have a switch in your brain that disconnects your motor control from the rest of your body while you're dreaming. Now this is a good thing since it keeps you from doing all sorts of crazy stuff in your sleep, like trying to go through the fridge or running out the front door, all sorts of stuff. But of course, sometimes this switch malfunctions, and in that situation you might end up sleepwalking and then you will go through the fridge or go out the front door or whatever. Well, the reverse can also happen. In that situation, you wake up, but your body is paralyzed because your brain isn't letting you have control of your limbs yet. A common reaction to experiencing sleep paralysis is to panic. And actually, there's an interesting theory going around that this might be the cause of all the myths regarding alien abduction. But anyway, the point is, if you experience this, you're probably going to panic. And of course, you can't move your limbs, you can't even scream, but you're still totally freaking the f*** out. And actually, this has happened to me a couple times, and I can say with certainty that it's a terrifying experience. Anyway, so we have Patrick laying down to sleep, and he tells us that in the middle of the night, Satan fell upon his chest like a great rock, so that he couldn't move his arms or legs, and that he was that way until the sun began to rise. And he shouted, Elijah, as the sun touched his body. And then the weight was lifted, and he could move again. Why Elijah? Why not Jesus? Well, Elijah was much more prominent in the early church than he is now. Also, he was often featured riding on a fiery chariot, cruising towards heaven. Similar to Sol Invictus and Helios in a variety of ways, actually. And Sol Invictus was only recently replaced as the official religion, so the imagery might have still stuck around in the imaginations of the people just altered to have a more Christian theme. So as the sun was rising, Patrick might have immediately thought of Elijah, the prophet associated with the sun, and shouted out his name rather than Jesus. Anyway, the point is that either the sleep paralysis ended, or Satan got sun in his eyes and took off running. Either way, Patrick could continue on his journey. And the rest of the journey was uneventful. He had food, nice weather, warm fires... All in all, it was rather pleasant. And then, at long last, he made it back home to Bonaventa Bernii. Imagine the shock that his parents must have experienced. They had mourned the death of their son. They tried to put their lives back together. And then six years later, a lean, hardened, older, and much more radicalized version of the 15-year-old boy they had lost returned. The friends of his childhood probably had entered public life and had families of their own by now. And here was Patrick, scarred and forever changed. He had spent six years having absolutely no control over his life. While his parents were spending time in the forums and the halls of power, he had been tending his sheep. 
All these years he had been away from his family, his people, and far from the safety of Rome. And now he was back. I wonder if his parents recognized him at first. After all, he must have changed dramatically over those years. Did he try and reconnect with his friends? Or did he keep to himself? Initially, he might have been a celebrity. The boy who returned from the dead. The boy who was taken as a slave and lived to tell about it. He would have had some incredible stories to tell. And people would have wanted to hear them. But did he tell them what they wanted to hear? Or was he so scarred by his experiences that he couldn't talk about it without reliving it? It would have been surprising if he wasn't suffering from PTSD, after all. And there are hints in his writings that even as an old man, he was still haunted by his childhood. So maybe, like many who lived through traumatic experiences, he refused to talk about it. And it's doubtful that he had any sort of support group where he could share these things with. Anyone who could understand what he'd been through. I imagine he must have felt quite alone. And amidst all this, we have the backdrop of the collapse of Roman Britannia. It wasn't just Patrick's personal life that was crumbling down around him. It was also his home. So maybe Patrick started to become an outcast. The aspects of his life that had made him a celebrity would have also set him apart and made him forever on the outside of society, looking in. Maybe his newfound piety was grating on his family and former friends. Maybe he wasn't as accepting of slavery as he once was, now that he bore the scars of that lifestyle. We don't know how long he was home for, nor do we know exactly what happened, but it must have been a rather traumatic experience both for Patrick and the community as a whole. It wasn't like he could just pick up his life where he left off and reintegrate. Life, especially one filled with trauma, is rarely that clean or easy. So late one night, Patrick dreamt of a man named Victoricus, He came from Ireland to deliver a huge number of letters, which he placed on Patrick's bed. The first dream letter he read was titled, The Voice of the Irish. And suddenly he heard voices calling to him, saying, Holy boy, come here and walk among us. And here's where we have another part of Patrick's story that seems strange. Upon waking, Patrick says he felt an immense sadness. Sadness? These people enslaved and brutalized him, and he endured all manner of hardships to escape. Sadness? Was he homesick? Did he have Stockholm Syndrome? It is kind of strange, isn't it? And then Patrick had another dream, this time in which he discovered that God was speaking to him from within his dreams, and he came to believe that God was directly working through him, and he decided that he needed to return to Ireland. Now, we don't know the dates, the sequence of events, or how long this all took. After all, he was just an escaped slave. He wasn't a bishop. So something must have happened. Something significant and holy. So let's talk about the first bishop of Ireland. But before we do, we should probably set a few things in perspective. For example, our image of Christianity might be a little bit warped by hindsight. From our current viewpoint, Christianity is well-established and very old. It has been on the earth for a couple millennia, and it's one of the dominant religions on the planet. It has been at the center of major political, military, and social movements for much longer than any of us have been alive. It's very easy to think of Christianity as a massive juggernaut. But the period we're talking about is only 400 years after Jesus was executed in a dry province on the far side of the empire. It's been less than 100 years since Constantine had his dramatic conversion. 
Hell, it was only in 303 when Diocletian decided to really stick it to the Christians with a variety of edicts that are commonly referred to now as the Great Persecution. And actually, Christians were often at the center of conspiracy theories, and the Romans loved their conspiracy theories. The point is that Christianity wasn't the force it would later become. It was still young. Now, it had a strong appeal to people, especially among women and the lower classes, due to its message of equality, charity, and compassion. This wasn't a religion of toughen up, Susan. Christ spoke to the meek. He healed the sick. He had an open disdain for the rich. People often forget this, but he said, quote, Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He also spoke about how the meek would inherit the earth. So yeah, the downtrodden of the Roman world, namely women and the poor, appear to have found the religion rather inviting, and for obvious reasons. But it still was young at this point, and in many cases it was being treated like a cult, and it was also having a hard time gaining traction in the West and in rural areas. And to make matters worse, in addition to lacking many primary sources that we had in the earlier Romano-British period, we're also lacking many sources on British Christianity. So in addition to the religion being young, our knowledge of what was going on is a bit sketchy. So that's where we're at with regard to Christianity. And then you have Ireland. You probably have a view of them as a bunch of slave-raiding Celts from across the channel. And you'd be right. They might not have been as savage as the Romans would have you believe. For example, St. Jerome wrote of how they would cut off the nipples and buttocks from men and women and then eat them as a delicacy. Having read other Roman accounts of barbarians, I really wonder how much of that was hyperbolic and just a literary flourish to get the attention of the audience. It really wouldn't be the first time that a Roman author had done that, after all. But we can at least say that they were definitely a slave-trading warrior people. That much we know. And here's something else we know about them. Some of them probably also spoke Latin. From an early date, the Irish were borrowing words from Latin, and their merchants certainly would have had to learn and use it if they wanted to engage in trade relations. So while it's easy for us to imagine Ireland as a completely backwards and out-of-touch area outside of the empire, the truth is, they weren't. Oh, and I can't remember if I mentioned this in an earlier podcast yet or not, but about 200 years before Patrick was born, Salinas made mention of the fact that there were absolutely no snakes in Ireland a fact that will become much more important the later we go in the story. So when we last left off, Patrick had decided to return to Ireland as a missionary. This almost certainly would have involved prior training, since, other than his schooling as a child, his only real training appears to have been as a slave. And chances are that while he was off studying and preparing, Germanus was in Britannia, dealing with the Pelagians. Remember him and his bum leg? And the miracle where a bunch of buildings burned down, but his didn't? That guy. Well, that was right around the period when Patrick would have probably been training or acting as clergy or something along those lines. After all, it wasn't like he could just show up and be offered the position of bishop. There's a whole hierarchy to go through. Now, I should mention that it is possible that he could have been rubber-stamped into the clergy. After all, his family was already in the church, and considering how many wealthy Romans entered the clergy in order to gain tax breaks, there must have been at least a couple shortcuts. So it might have been possible for him to become a bishop rather quickly, or at least quicker than one could accomplish that today. But if that avenue was available to him... It doesn't seem like he took it, since it took about 25 years following his escape for Patrick to become a bishop. 
And actually, we know from his letters that he spent at least some of his time, probably the remainder of his 20s, as a deacon, which was actually a pretty good job for an ambitious member of the cloth. Now, for those of you who've gone through Catholic school or maybe have experience with Catholicism, that might seem a little bit counterintuitive. After all, the ranks go deacon, priest, bishop, right? Well, the thing about it is, is that actually the deacons worked really close with bishops, and often the bishops were chosen from the deacons rather than the priests. Consider it along the lines of Jon Snow in Game of Thrones. He served the old bear, right? On the surface, it might seem like a minor position. After all, he was cleaning bedpans and getting food. But John was the right hand of power and was being groomed to assume command. So that's probably what happened with Patrick acting as a deacon, and it could have been how he ended up ordained. Now, where this training took place, we can't be absolutely certain of. Tradition tells us that he traveled in order to study, and apparently he went to the Tyrrhenian Sea, which suggests that he might have studied at Lorenz. And that's where many prominent members of the clergy from that time had been trained. So it's possible that he went there. Now, some stories say that he went to Gaul to study, perhaps with Germanus. But as you might imagine, there isn't much supporting evidence for this. Or anything else, for that matter. So who knows? Unfortunately, Patrick is rather sparing with facts. But regardless, Patrick was probably off training to become a bishop while Germanus was dealing with the whole... Pelagianism thing. And interestingly, even though it was a big enough problem to send Germanus to Britannia, and the Pope was really concerned about it, there's absolutely no mention of Pelagianism in Patrick's letters. That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, he was from Britannia, and Britannia was kind of the hotbed of Pelagianism, so why not mention it? It's just weird. That being said, there's a lot that's weird about this story. And actually, that leads nicely into the next event, which is also pretty weird. You see, around the time that Germanus was in Britannia, Pope Celestine decided to aid the Christians in Ireland and provide them with a bishop of their own, quite possibly at the Irish's own request. Is your mind blown right now? At some point in your life, you've probably been told that Patrick brought Christianity to Ireland. And yet right now we're hearing about how there were already Christians there long before he arrived. And we can be sure of this because bishops were only sent to areas that already contained Christian communities. And actually, there are some churches in Southern Ireland that claim they were founded before Patrick. Anyway, to continue the story, the Pope decided to send a bishop to Ireland, possibly at the request of the Irish. And if the Irish did make the request themselves, this was a great opportunity for the church. I mean, hell, even if they didn't, it was still a politically savvy move to make. Not only would the church be strengthened at the edge of the world, but if Ireland could be kept close to Rome and Gaul stays close to Rome, then this Pelagian nonsense in Britannia would surely fizzle out or at least stay contained on that stretch of island. So all in all, it was a smart move. And the Pope was almost certainly smart enough to realize that if he didn't send someone, the Pelagians would. And then all of a sudden, Britannia and Ireland would be hotbeds of Pelagianism, and then you've got a whole world of trouble. So he looked over the candidates... And there was a clear choice. There was a man with ties to Britannia, supporting Gaul, and a man who had strong anti-Pelagian credentials. He was a man who spent time as a deacon learning the ropes prior to becoming a bishop, and who was accustomed to moving within the circles of powerful men. Confident in his choice, Celestine dispatched the Bishop of Ireland along with a staff of priests and deacons. And they set sail. 
As they arrived in their little boat, some of the deacons and priests might have been terrified. The stories regarding the Irish weren't the most flattering or calming of tales. But the bishop was almost certainly steadfast and fearless. Looking upon the rocky shores and grassy hills of his new territory, he was ready to spread the word and bring the Irish firmly within the fold of Rome. And we don't really know much about what followed. We aren't even sure where they landed or who they worked with. Later traditions suggest that it might have been in Leinster in Southern Ireland, and that might have been the case based upon the evidence we have of Roman contact in the area, but we don't have any solid proof. But what the later tales say is that within a year, the mission had failed miserably, and Palladius, the first bishop of Ireland, died within the following year, disgraced and broken, while Patrick replaced him as bishop that same year, 432, at least according to the annals. But we should be careful about how much of these traditions we trust. It is entirely possible that the facts were exaggerated, or maybe even outright fabricated, to make Patrick's later successes seem even more miraculous. The annals even mention how Palladius built churches in wood, while Patrick built them in stone. Think about that. Palladius built the churches in wood, while Patrick built them in stone. There's a certain literary flourish there that really should give you pause. That doesn't sound like an actual event. That sounds more like an analogy. But here's the fun part of this story. It's possible that Patrick was one of the deacons that accompanied Palladius. Think about it. This is around the time that he would have been a deacon, and Palladius would have definitely wanted someone with him that was familiar with the language and the customs of the Irish, and it wasn't like Patrick's past would be unknown. He was the man who escaped Irish slavery. He would have been a curiosity that everyone would have known about, especially since he believed that God was instructing him to return to his captors. So really, he would have been an obvious choice to accompany Palladius. Hell, Patrick himself might have requested the appointment as soon as he heard word of it. I mean, he really wanted to go back. And if the annals are right, Patrick replaced Palladius within a year. That could account for his quick ascension and appointment. But if that's the case, we're forced to wonder why he didn't return to the South. The record, while not clear, Patrick never says where he worked. Who does that when they're writing about their lives? They just leave out key details like that. Anyway... While the record is not clear, it does seem to point pretty strongly to the fact that Patrick might have been working largely in the north of Ireland. So why the relocation from Palladius' center of operations? We may never know. But it certainly had an impact upon the relationship between the north and the south. After all, we're not just talking about spiritual control being in the north, but there's also wealth that was being funneled to the north as a result. So there was a bishop of Ireland before Patrick. There were also saints other than Patrick. St. Alb was one of these. He was from humble birth, which is a common background for most saints, and actually that contrasts pretty heavily with Patrick, doesn't it? Patrick was a toff. Anyway, so Alb was apparently the child of a slave and was raised by a wolf, and then baptized by Palladius, the first bishop of Ireland. The story goes that after traveling Europe and even meeting the Pope, Alb returned to Ireland and brought Christianity to the island through miracles and wonders. And supposedly, this was before Patrick. And there were other saints too. And from the tales, they were present before Patrick arrived. In fact, 
According to one story, Alb, Declan, Ibar, and Kiaran apparently had a rather heavy debate on whether or not to accept Patrick as their superior. As you might recall, this wasn't just a matter of religious import or even xenophobia, but there was a financial and political consideration to take into account. Patrick, in the north, wanted control, and that meant money and power would flow up there and out of southern lands, some of which had probably been Christian long before Patrick showed up. So some of the saints weren't convinced, and a debate broke out. Now, this story involves an angel interceding on behalf of Patrick, so take that as you will. But the interesting thing about this is that, at least according to the story, there were saints in Ireland before Patrick, and not all of them were impressed by this Briton from across the sea. Hell, Ebar wanted to nut him. So Christianity wasn't new to the island, and it already had some major figures, and it even had a bishop before Patrick. So what did Patrick do when he arrived? Well, it isn't crystal clear. We know that he worked in the north, and in his letters he said that he worked in places that no one had ever been before at the very edge of the world. Now this again sounds like a literary flourish. And if you're one of the people who think that Patrick is at least partially full of it, you might also look at this description as the perfect cover. Oh yeah, I converted people. I converted everyone, actually. I was excellent at my job. But it was overseas and far from anywhere that you've been. You've never even heard of it, actually. I mean, he claims to have baptized thousands of people, converted the sons of kings, though king wasn't as impressive as you might imagine. It was probably closer to minor warlord or even mayor. And he said that he turned wealthy women into nuns. So if he's fluffing up his resume, having it happen in an unnamed area that no one has ever been to is a solid way for him to cover his ass. So it's possible that it could be almost like the middle school claim of, I've got a girlfriend in Canada, and she's hot. No, you can't talk to her. But she's super hot and totally in love with me, and I'm telling the truth here, dude. You know, maybe there is a Canadian girlfriend. But it sounds a little fishy, right? But let's just assume that he's terrible at making an accurate record, and that he did actually go to these remote parts and did a great job. Well, he was probably well-trained for this task in that case. At least, he might have had a really good role model for it. Ninian, whose feast was celebrated on September 16th, had succeeded in converting the southern Picts. Now, to be fair, Ninian was a shadowy figure, and he wasn't mentioned until the 8th century, but he's referred to as working during this period, and Patrick does refer to the Picts as being Christian in his letters, so maybe Patrick paid attention to what Ninian did and followed his path. In fact, based upon his reaction to the Picts returning to their pagan ways— Sorry about the spoiler there. It does make you wonder if he might have been involved in that conversion, maybe training with Ninian, and that would explain why he had that sense of betrayal. And it would have been a good way for him to prepare for his mission to Ireland. So it is possible that not only did he look to Ninian as a model for his behavior, but he actually studied with him. Now as for what he walked into, it's hard to say, since he doesn't really tell us much. There were Christians in the north, but he doesn't tell us how many. There's a good chance that there were enough for a congregation, but a lot of them probably would have been slaves from Britain. And a lot of them would have also been women. As we've spoken about before, the early church was strengthened in large part by the women who joined its ranks. And this was just another example of it. Now, of course, just because some of the slaves were probably Christian doesn't mean that their masters would have allowed them to attend Patrick's services. They were slaves, after all. But there's a good argument that the masters would have seen the advantage in allowing Patrick access. If you wanted to keep a group of slaves from acting out and rebelling, 
Why would you want to prevent access to a religion that would keep their eyes firmly fixed upon the afterlife rather than the injustice of their current circumstance? So it would make logical sense to allow them to go. And also, there might have been masters who were converted by their slaves and wanted to attend the services as well. Other areas had masters who were converted by their slaves, so why couldn't it happen in Ireland? Now, in general, Patrick was probably working with a decent-sized group in addition to any congregation he might gather. There would be deacons, priests, and such, since that's typically how bishops rolled. And throughout his time in Ireland, he was also ordaining clergy, which might have bolstered his ranks as well as strengthened his position. Irish clergy would have been much more likely to reach the native population than this British former slave, and it also ensured that if he died, his life's work would continue. The spreading of the gospel would have been a rather personal affair, and also quite simplistic. It's unlikely that Patrick would get into the harder-to-understand aspects of Christianity and the various schisms that occurred, but rather he would have kept it to the core principles and maybe some of the exciting stories. I mean, think about it. Patrick was competing against a world filled with gods and goddesses and all manner of exciting tales and supernatural beings. And what did he have? A single god who was actually three people, but still just one god. Well, that's exciting. But Christ's emphasis on charity, the poor, doing good acts, and the attention paid to the downtrodden, such as women, would have been quite enticing to the population, at least a good portion of the population. And then if you throw in a few miracles, such as walking on water and healing the sick, things start to get a little more interesting. Now, the lessons that he taught definitely would have focused upon his creed. Creeds aren't used too often these days, but back then they really were. And they were basically a nutshell view of a person's or group's core beliefs. Think about it like a mission statement for a company. Patrick's creed was remarkably like that of many modern Christians, actually. It focused upon the fact that Jesus was both God and the Son of God, that he conquered death, that someday everyone would proclaim him as God, that he would return very soon, that the Holy Spirit binds followers and makes them siblings of each other and God, and that God was actually three parts in one. For Patrick, those niggling theological questions that the church was dealing with and embroiled in conflicts over, such as the question of whether grace was required for salvation and whether man is born into original sin or comes into the world with a clean slate, well, those aren't mentioned by Patrick. So we can guess that it really didn't concern him, or at least he didn't concern himself with that. And instead, his lessons probably focused upon the core aspects that everyone agreed upon and were easy to understand and explain. The services themselves would have been quite Spartan. They probably would have been outside or in someone's property and probably would have consisted of Patrick or one of his priests reading from the Bible. He and his clergy probably wore white, which the church had started doing earlier, but was also a rather smart political move since the Druids also dressed in white and his doing so would automatically cloak him in the aura of a holy man. But don't forget that this is also from the same period as Pelagianism, and one of the critiques of the Pelagian priests was that they wore extravagant clothing and jewelry. So he probably was wearing very simple and humble clothes, possibly just the white robes that I mentioned. Now everybody would be standing or sitting on benches while he spoke. I would imagine that Patrick would also translate the stories or parables so that the converts can understand what was being taught. After all, while Latin had penetrated Ireland to a certain degree, it was still probably a rather rare language to be found there. Now, over time, he and his followers probably built churches, but these most likely were just small and simple wood buildings, at least at first. 
and they probably were roughly Romano-British in shape, given his background. Now, even if he was building churches in stone, like the literary flourish we heard about earlier, well, in that case, they still would have been rather small, probably no more than 40 feet in length. The reason we think that is because the stone churches in Roman-occupied Britain were also pretty small in scale. Besides, judging from his letters, construction wasn't too important for Patrick. And for good reason. Patrick had two tasks. First, to take care of the existing Christians. And second, to convert the local population. That latter part was probably an increasing point of irritation for the local Druids. And I imagine that became even more acute when he decided to burn a bunch of records written in Ogham. But he knew what his job was, and he knew how to do it. But it must have been a really difficult one to carry out. Not everyone wanted to convert. And he didn't have any legal protection. He was a foreigner, and he was traveling through a variety of different lands. The thing is that there were tons of kings in Ireland, and each of them had a pretty good amount of power within their own domain, but not so much outside of their lands. So while Patrick might be safe in the lands of one king, there was no guarantee that that would last, and there certainly was no guarantee that he would be okay if he moved to another king's lands. In fact, he tells us that he had been beaten, imprisoned, and robbed at one point. So this wasn't an easy task that he undertook. But it's interesting to imagine this older man, dressed in simple white robes, wandering from place to place with his band of followers, never truly safe and deep in the lands of the very people who once held him as a slave. Okay, I think that this is a good place to stop since now the story is fully an Irish history story rather than a British history story, but hopefully it helps spice up your St. Patrick's Day festivities. Now, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast. And, of course, you can join us at the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved, and click forums, and we'll see you over there. Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs>